So are you glad to be here today? Yeah. Oh, I didn't, that didn't sound very convincing. You glad to be here today? Yeah. Good. Now, I'm going to need a lot of interaction from you today, okay? Get it? Good. So here's a little lesson on how not to invite someone to church. So you guys go to church, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, except I go to Holy Union. Yeah, and I go to First Presbyterian. Wait, those are the same denomination, right? Yeah. yeah. They. Yeah. That's they, crazy. I they didn't are. Realize yeah. that. Yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> Lately, I've been having this uh, calling that I should go back to church. Yeah. So, I think I'm gonna go this Sunday somewhere. You should totally come to my church. It's great music, and the pastor is always on point. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'd or you could it. come to my church. Um, we have an amazing choir, and there's a rotating cast of pastors that oh. is so funny. I actually used to sing in choir. Church has like so many people that go, but not too many people, just the right amount that you'll make a friend before you leave. Yeah, and actually in my my church when you come in, you're automatically signed up for a small group, so it's like instant group of friends. I don't know if I want to get My pastor trained at Trinity Bible Seminary. (laughs) It's the top school. Um, Actually, my pastor went to Israel, and he can actually translate the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think that'd be kind of hard to understand. There's a potluck right after. There's actually uh, bagels as you walk into the church. The pastor does a welcome brunch just for you. Okay, you know what? My pastor actually goes into your home, (laughs) and he cooks you a meal while you're sleeping, and you wake up to it. It's amazing. They let you lead worship. Okay, you get to choose what the sermon topic is for the day. You get to choose when church starts. You get to choose when church ends. You get to become a deacon right away. You get to become the pastor of the church. You get to go on a mission trip. That's a free vacation. Okay, you get to charge our church yacht you can go anywhere as long as it's within the mediterranean sorry no you know i think that sorry that sounds great i but it's been so long since i've been to church so i'm just gonna go to the church down the street lake mary prez that is where i go to church what yes oh my gosh you should absolutely come the pastor is really amazing he's this super chill guy Uh he goes rock climbing on the weekends hiking and then every sunday him and his wife bring freshly baked So, let me tell you, Messiah Park Community Church, soon to be known as, soon to be known as, is the best church in Las Cruces. For some people. And we're hoping it's the best church for you. If it's not, let us know. We'd like to help you find the best church for you and your family. Um, So, we are going to go from where we left off last week. So if you get your books out, we are in the blue section. We just covered last week uh, what we teach about baptism. So we're moving to a capital letter D, find capital letter B, I mean, as in boy, what we teach about eternal security. So hold your book up when you found that. This section over here is slow. We'll wait for you. Okay, here we go. So read that out loud with me underneath what we teach about eternal security. Salvation is about the grace of God from beginning to end. We believe that although sin can interrupt a Christian's fellowship with God, it cannot interrupt a person's relationship with God or diminish in any way God's love for him or her. Salvation is a relationship with the living God. Specifically, it is being adopted as God's own sons and daughters The Heavenly Father does not and will never disown his home children. Uh, Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 8. He writes to us, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any other powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, except for our own sin and failure, right? No. What can separate us from the love of God? What can separate us from the love of God? Still not good enough. What can separate us from the love of God? All right, get it? Good. You know, when I was a teenager, I put my mother through you know what. And I remember a time in particular, I was 18 years old, and my curfew was midnight, and I stayed out one night till 3 a.m. And when I drove up, I could see that the front door was open, and my mother was standing there, and I knew she was doing two things. I knew she was praying, and I knew she was crying for fear that something had happened to me. So when I walk up to the door, she began to let me have a piece of her mind, which I deserved. But then I quickly responded back to her, and I said things to her a mother should never hear from her son. And so she hurried off to bed crying, and I kind of strutted off to bed defiant. Well, you know what she did the next morning? What any good mother would do. She packed my bags, told me to get out. She never wanted to see me again, and I was no longer her son. That's exactly how some people think God treats his children. I lied, by the way. That's not what my my mother did. That next morning, she woke me up, as she often did, by kissing me on the cheek. She told me, I love you, Nani which was her kind of pet name for me. My middle name's John, and Giovanni is John in Italian, and Nani is short for Giovanni. She said, I love you, Nani. Breakfast is on the table when you're ready. Now I'm the one that's weeping. When my mother left, I just lost it, and I just felt so unworthy to have a mother like that that loved me more than I deserved. And so when uh, I went into the kitchen, I grabbed her up in my arms and lifted her up, and I gave her a kiss on the cheek, and I told her how much I loved her, how sorry I was I hurt her and made her worry, and that I was going to do my best never to do that again. In fact, I never did do that again, because even, even back then without cell phones, I found some way to call my mother and let her know if I was going to be late. It was her unconditional love and that grace that she showed me that broke my rebellious spirit, that changed my heart, which ended up also changing my behavior. And in a much greater way, God's love and grace does that in our lives. In, in Roman culture, an adopted child was actually considered to be more privileged than a biological child, than a natural-born child. A, a Roman father could disown and disinherit a natural-born child, but could not do that with an adopted child. Uh, that adoption was a relationship that was permanent, and it was unbreakable. So now look at how Paul, writing to the Romans, how he describes our relationship with God. He says, you received his spirit through what? Through what? I need your feedback. You received his spirit through what? adoption, by which we have the right to call him Abba, Father, that is Papa or Daddy. So Paul used that word adoption deliberately, writing to Romans because he knew their culture, 
to emphasize that we are those adopted children that God cannot and will not ever disown. Listen, if you're a Christian, you are God's beloved son. You are God's precious daughter. And that's never going to change. Is that good news? Get it? Good. Let's go to see in what we teach about money and giving. Read that out loud with me. We believe that everything we have has been given to us by and belongs to God. The goal of how we handle everything God has given us is to accomplish his purposes on this earth. Now, I know a lot of people don't like to hear about money at church. I will not ask you to raise your hand. But there's probably some here. And, you know, all I can say about that is it's a good thing Jesus is not your pastor. Because Jesus talked more about money than almost any subject. One in ten verses in the gospel is about money, possessions, giving. And and almost one-third of Christ's parables deal with that subject. So you get the idea that it was a pretty important subject to Jesus? And therefore, it ought to be a pretty important subject to us, right? So what does the Bible teach about money and possessions? We don't have time to talk about everything, but we'll talk about a few. Number one. The Bible teaches that everything that we have is given to us and belongs to God. Even our bodies belong to God. It's all His. Psalm 24.1 says this. Read it out loud with me. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to Him. Get it? Good. Let's go to two. God provides in order to bless us and bless others through us. Look at what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, tell those who have the riches of this world not to be arrogant, not to place their confidence in anything as uncertain as riches. Instead, they should place their confidence in God who barely provides, right? What does it say? Richly provides, underline that, richly provides us with everything to give to missions, right? No. Provides us everything to feed the poor. No. Provides us everything to pay the pastor's salary. Yes. No, that's a no too. So say that he provides us with everything to what? To what? Enjoy. Circle that. And imagine that. The very first reason listed that God blesses us financially is that we might enjoy life. Does that sound like that killjoy God that you might have grown up believing that he was? No. But he goes on to write, that's not all he wants us to do with what he gives us. In verse 18, he says, we'll tell them to do good, to do a lot of good things, to be generous, and to share. In other words, Give to missions and feed the poor and pay the pastor's salary. Get it? Good. Number three, the tithe, 10%, is the starting place of generous New Testament giving. Now look at this promise in Malachi 3 that goes with the command to tithe. 
The Lord All-Powerful says this. Try this test. Bring one-tenth of your things to me. Put them in the temple treasury. Test me. See what he's saying? He's like issuing this challenge. He's kind of saying, I dare you to try this. Test me. If you do these things, I will surely what? Bless you. Good things will come to you like rain falling from the sky. And you will have more than enough of everything. Now, some say that tithing, giving 10%, is not taught or expected in the New Testament. So it's not expected now. Is that, is that true? Well, yes and no. It's kind of both. Let me explain. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23, you should what? What does he say? You should tithe. Circle that. You should tithe. But do not neglect the more important things. But understand, the tithe was part of Old Testament standard. It was part of the law, the Old Testament standard of giving. Uh, the tithe was almost like a tax. It was a duty. It was an obligation to give 10%. As Christians, we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. And so our motive for giving should not be out of duty, obligation. It should not be to re- Uh, satisfy the requirements of the law, our motivation should be out of love and, and, and gratitude and trust. And I want to ask you, which should be a more powerful motivation, duty and obligation or love and gratitude? Love and gratitude. And you see that in the early church. Giving in the early church went far beyond the tithe. Far beyond 10%, they gave generously, they gave sacrificially, and they gave joyfully. I'm going to let you read the verses in your book that support that. We're going to go to four, giving is a heart issue. Tracy talked about this uh, when she spoke here before the offering. What and how you give reveals and determines what's in your heart. And Jesus said in Luke 12, 24, read it out loud with me. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Read that with me. I didn't hear you reading it with me. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here's the question. Why does God ask us to give? Why does he want us to give? Why does he want us to give generously? Does God want us to give Because he needs our money? No. He doesn't need a dime from us. So then why would he want us to give? We give not for his sake, we give for our sake. Giving is meant to be a blessing to us. Uh, Giving changes us. Giving changes you. Giving causes the character of a giving and generous God to be formed in your heart. Giving builds your faith and your trust in God as your provider. Giving allows you to impact this world for good, impact this world for Christ, and to live for something greater than your own desires and needs. Giving also, Scripture says, gains for us an eternal reward. 
You know, there are blessings that belong to us that God has promised us that we only receive as we give and give with the right spirit. And that's important. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make a deal with you. I'm going to tell you something. I give you permission. You do not have to give. Do not give another dime to this church out of duty, obligation, or arm twisting. Deal? Get it? Good. And Paul flat out says the same thing here in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. He says to us, you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. You shouldn't give if you don't want to. You shouldn't give because you're forced to. God loves what? A cheerful giver. I tell you, if you don't understand this, if you don't understand that blessing after blessing will flow into your life and blessing after blessing will flow from you into the lives of others, if you don't understand that, you may never get to the point where you can give cheerfully and generously. So now having said that, let's take up an offering and see how much you love Jesus. Well, we're, uh, we're going to have to talk now about two controversial and potentially hurtful topics. And God, give me the grace to speak the truth in love. Letter D. Let's talk about what we teach about when life begins. What was it again? E. Like I said, letter E. What we teach about when life begins. Let's read that out loud together. We believe the scripture teaches that life begins at conception. From the moment of conception to the moment of death, all life is sacred. Listen, when life begins is not a political issue. It's not even a scientific issue, although science is on our side. When life begins is an issue that the Word of God speaks about, and this should be our authority to determine when life begins. Amen? Amen. So look at this, First Luke 1, 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the lifeless mass in her womb leaped with joy, right? No. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, her what? Her what? Leaped, with, leaped in her womb. So what was that in her womb? A baby. Look at Exodus 21. It says, If men fight with each other and injure a pregnant woman so that she gives birth prematurely and the baby lives, yet there is no further injury to the baby, the one who hurt her must be punished with a fine paid to the woman's husband as much as the judge decides. Well, listen to this. If there is any further injury to the baby then you shall require as a penalty life for what? So what, was, what, what is that child? It's a, a human life, right? So listen, if that object was a human life, if that object was a baby when it came from the womb unexpectedly, what was it moments before when it was in the womb? A baby. Does anything change in what that is in the six inches of the birth canal? No. Now, I, I wish I had more time um, 
to talk about this. I have a message online that I want to refer you to. And what I've tried to do in this message is I've tried to take uh, science and reason and the word of God and sought to prove that that product in the womb is, is a baby, that conception is when life begins. And if you're interested in that message, you can find it online. And I'll give you the name of it. It's called Being Salt, Light, and Pro-Life. So I would like you to read with me this section that says, while treating those who disagree. Would you read that out loud with me? While treating those who disagree with us with dignity and treating those who have experienced an abortion with grace and compassion. Is that not in, a, in there? Okay, well, was it, was it up here? Yeah, okay, I'll read it from here then. Okay, let's do it again. While treating those who disagree with us with dignity and treating those who have experienced an abortion with grace and compassion without endorsing political candidates, Messiah Park Community Church takes a strong pro-life stance. Now, before we move on, I want to say this. If you have experienced an abortion, God loves you. And listen, he loves you just as much as if you had never had an abortion. And by the way, we love you too. And this is a safe place. This is a place where you can be real and a place where you can heal. And that's what we hope you find here. So again, we love you and God loves you too. Let's go to the next letter, whatever it is in your outline. <laughs> what is it? F, okay. <laughs> what we teach about marriage and sex. Did you read that out loud with me? We believe that God's design and will is that sex belongs only between one man and one woman in a committed and loving marriage relationship. God's design and will is that marriage be a partnership unto death between one man and one woman made legally, publicly, and with a sacred oath. First thing we want to say here is that sex is a gift from God when experienced in its proper context. You know, unlike what many think, God is not a prude. He designed the plumbing. So scripture promotes and encourages a fulfilling sex life between a husband and wife. Look at Song of Solomon. This is the Bible. You are so beautiful. You please me so much. You are so delightful, my love. You are as graceful as a palm tree. Your breasts are as sweet as the freshest fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I'll take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be as sweet as the fruit on the vine. May your breath smell like the tastiest apples. May your lips be like the finest wine. The woman, the wife says, may my wine go straight to you, my love. May it flow gently over our lips as we sleep. I belong to you, my love, and you long for me. Is it getting warm in here or is it just me? <laughs> Could I have a glass of water, please? <laughs> if you got kids in here, I told you there's PG-13 in here. <laughs> well, number two, 
Sex is only meant to be experienced between one man and one woman in a committed, loving marriage relationship. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. That is regarded as something of great value, and the marriage bed should be undefiled by immorality or by any sexual sin. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Sexually, sexual immorality here means just basically sex outside of that between one man and one woman who are married to each other. Now, I confess that I am a person who has trouble at times speaking the truth if I think it's going to hurt someone. And I pray that I don't hurt people with what I say, but I need to speak the truth. Scripture is clear that same-sex sexual relationships are not God's will for us. Leviticus 18.22 says, You men shall not lie intimately with a male as one lies with a female. New Testament, Romans 1 says, That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. And shameful here just means not as designed, not, not what was intended. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex. Instead, they indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. So once again, if, uh, if you have a difference about that, we love you. We love you. And you're welcome here. Once again, I, I wish I had time to get into this further, but we do have a message available online, and it was from a series that we did a while back called Fifty Shades of Black and White. And uh, the, the message is what the Bible teaches about same-sex attraction. But again, the Bible is clear. Number three, marriage is meant to be a divinely blessed covenant between one man and one woman for a lifetime. I always kind of hear this argument. Well, there were people in the Bible that practiced, practiced polygamy. Well, that was never God's intent. God's original intent for marriage is found in Genesis 2. It says, a man will leave his own father and mother and marries a woman. How many women? A woman. Not two, not three, not like Solomon, not 700. I don't know what he was thinking. And the how many? Two, husband and wife. The two of them will become like one person. And I'll tell you, the next domino to fall in the redefinition of marriage is going to be this one. And soon we will have a strong push for polygamy being legalized. So I want you to go and, and read what comes next there. It says, just listen to me for a moment. While all are welcome. Underline the words, all are welcome. Say that with me. All are welcome. To worship, fellowship, grow and experience the love of God together with us. Read the rest of it out loud. We also seek to encourage all to align every area of their lives with God's will as revealed in Scripture, including how we live out our sexuality. Keep reading. We believe God loves us just as we are and also loves us too much to allow us to stay as we are 
when areas of our lives are outside of his good and perfect will for us. We believe we should love each other in the same manner. So we're going to switch gears now. It's time to move to the next section. It's time to move into the green pages of your Connect book. And we're going to talk about connecting through growth. Now something is wrong when an adult doesn't act like an adult. Like this lady. Watch. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I need breakfast. I need breakfast. I love breakfast. The writer of Hebrews says that there are Christians who look like that, that haven't grown up spiritually. Look at Hebrews 5. It says, you have been Christians a long time now. You ought to be teaching others, but instead you've dropped back to the place where you need someone to teach you all over again the very first principles in God's Word. You are like babies who can drink only milk, not old enough for solid food. And when a person is still living on milk, it shows he's not very far along in the Christian life. He is still a a baby Christian. So how do we grow up in faith? That's what this next section is about. Now, we're only going to cover the very first section of this, and the rest we'll hit next week. Now, a big reason that people get stuck in their faith is they fail to understand the real nature of the Christian life, of Christian faith. So I, in your, in your outline there, God created and desires you to have a personal relationship with him. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship with the living God. How many of y'all have heard that before? How many believe that's true? Well, let me tell you what my former pastor, when I was out in California, what he said about this statement. He said that this statement is the worst piece of, of Christian propaganda ever spoken. Not because it isn't true. It is true. But because it's the experience of so few Christians. We live our faith, not like it's a relationship with a loving and living God. 
We live it like it's just a religion. And Jesus had a mission to change what people believed God wanted from them. And so when a teacher of the law approaches Jesus and asks him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What's that rule that God really wants us to keep? Jesus replied, read it with me, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He said it's not about rules. God wants a relationship with you, a relationship that's based upon his love for you and in turn your love for him. So look, look at the difference, letter A, the difference between religion and relationship. Number one, religion is impersonal. Relationships are personal. Again, the focus of religion is living correctly by a set of rules. The focus of a relationship is growing in intimacy with another. In Revelation 2, 2 through 4, uh, this was written to the Christians in the church of Ephesus. And listen, they had living by the rules down pat. And this is Jesus speaking, and he says to the Christians in Ephesus, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Sounds great, right? I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You've found them to be false. So they understood doctrine. They knew the word of God. You've persevered. You've endured hardships for my name. You have not grown weary. They endured persecution. I mean, they, they had it down. They had their quiet times. They read their Bibles faithfully. They were there whenever the doors of the church were open. They could find the book of Obadiah without even looking at the table of contents in their Bible. They didn't smoke, drink, chew, or go with the girls that do. They were a model of what the Christian life is all about. Right? Wrong. Look at what Jesus says next in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have what? Forsaken your first love. You've lost the depth of love you had for me. So they may have done the right things, but they did them for the wrong reasons. They did them out of duty and obligation rather than out of love. They traded what was meant to be a relationship with the living God for religion. And if you don't think there's a real difference between doing something out of duty and obligation and doing something out of love, I want you to ask any wife here today whether there's a difference. As a matter of fact, ask Terry. Ask her if it's good enough with her that I would show her affection because it's my duty as a husband. And I do it out of obligation rather than because I love her and I want her to feel that in a way that she can appreciate I mean, would it be okay to, you know, give me your hand because I'll hold it for a while. I know good husbands are supposed to do that. <laughs> or here, let me hug you because good husbands do that. Three, two, one, break. All right. <laughs> Happy anniversary, honey. I got you some candy. Oh, you don't like Reese's peanut butter cups? Good thing I do. I'm betting she wouldn't be thrilled with that. Well, neither is God when we treat him the same way. God desires so much more than that, so much better for you. 
Christianity is not about keeping rules. It's not duty. It's not obligation. Christianity is about keeping a relationship alive and growing. Number two, religion is driven by fear where relationships are driven by love. I know many of you grew up understanding, feeling the same thing I did. I thought for a long time that every bad thing that happened to me was punishment from God. Now, I used to make ugly faces at my brother at the dinner table, my brother Mickey, that used to love to try to get him to laugh while he was eating and cough up milk through his nose. My mother did not like that. My mother kept telling me to stop. Finally, she threatened me like this. She said, if you don't obey me, and if you don't stop making those ugly faces at your brother, someday God's going to punish you, and your face is going to get stuck like that. I know, I know, I should have listened. Look at Romans 5.8. says, God demonstrates his love for us in this way. Even while we were sinning against him, he sent his only son, Jesus, to die for us. Do you get that? How did God deal with our sinning against him? By threatening us? By punishing us? No. By the greatest demonstration of love that the world has ever known by far. He dealt with our sin by sending his own son to die upon a cross to take the penalty, penalty for our sins upon himself so that he could make us his. Wow. I love the example of, of Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther grew up thinking that God was stern and strict and mean and harsh because that's what his father was like. And he thought God was just like his father. What his father used to do, by the way, is he would hang a whip in the middle of the house and he would tell his children that that's there so you can always see it and be reminded that I'm always watching you, ready to catch you doing something bad so I can punish you. And that's how Luther saw God. But then Luther came to the realization of who God really was. He understood his love. He understood his grace. And so Luther wanted his children to have that view of what God is really like. And so what he did is instead of hanging a whip in the middle of his house, he hung an apple. And he told his children, that's there so that you can always see it. And be reminded that your dad is always watching you. Ready to catch you doing something good. So that I can reward you. Isn't that cool? And that's what our God is like. And so instead of growing up fearing an angry God, his children grew up loving a kind and gracious God, the real God. 1 John 4, 4 through 8, John says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So listen. Stop being afraid that God is mad at you and that he's out to get you. Stop seeing obedience as, as a way to avoid being punished by an angry God. 
and start seeing it as the loving response to a God who always, always, always loves you more than you deserve. Loves you more than you can comprehend. Number three, religion increases our burden. Relationships lighten our burden. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. But I'd like you to write this down. The Christian life is not meant to be, or the, sorry, the Christian life is meant to be enjoyed, not endured. The Christian life is meant to be enjoyed, not endured. And to a large extent, that is how you know if you're doing it right. If you're enduring it, something's wrong. Number four, religion is a contract, relationship is an adoption. You know, religion is conditional. Religion says that if you want God's love and approval, you have to keep all these rules. Now, we love them, but there are some churches that teach that if you are a Christian, you can lose your salvation if you sin badly enough. So in other words, one minute you belong to God, the next minute you don't. One minute you're forgiven, the next you aren't. One minute you're, you're going to heaven, the next minute you're going to hell. One minute you have eternal life, the next minute you don't. I want you to think about something here real quick. If you have eternal life, when can you stop having eternal life? I can't hear you. Never. If, if, if you could stop having it, did you ever have eternal life? No. And yet, Scripture says that we have eternal life. Those of us who belong to, to the Son, 1 John 5, he who has the Son of God has what? Eternal life. These things I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. How many believe in the name of the Son of God? Which means you have what? Which means you lose it when? Never. Get it? Good. And in Romans 8, Paul tells us this, you, and we've read this earlier. You have received the spirit of God's adopted children, by which we call out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Listen, when we understand that, when we understand that salvation is God adopting us as his own sons, as his own daughters, then the question becomes, how bad does one of God's children have to be for God to disown him, to disown her. Where is that line? Parents, let me ask you that question with your kids. Where is that line that when your kids pass this point, they're this bad, you disown them, they're no longer your kids? Where is that line with you, parents? I can tell you where it is with me. There is no line. There is no line. There is never a point where I would disown them. Uh, they will always be my children. I will always love them, no matter what they do, no matter what they don't do, no matter how much they love me, no matter how much they don't. My love for them is never going to change. If they embrace my values or reject my values, I'm going to love them the same. And by the way, that's not just theory. I am living that out as we speak. And I hate to say this. But every single one of my kids, even Ryan, my son, now likes cats. 
I still love them. <laughs> even as I pray for their deliverance. <laughs> Look at Psalm 2710. It says, even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. Let's read that out loud together. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. Will you close your books now? That's as far as we're going to go. And I think many people have been disappointed in Christianity because they've been led to believe that Christianity is just a religion like any other religion. It's just a bunch of rules and a bunch of standards that they have to try to live up to, which they can never do well enough. And listen, if that is you, even in small part, I want to apologize to you. Because somehow from people like me, you got the wrong idea. You got the wrong idea of what God desires for you and what he offers you. And listen, what you're disappointed in is Christianity, the religion. That's not what it is. Christianity is a relationship with a loving and living God. There is more. There's better. The Westminster Confession says this, the chief end of man, our highest purpose for which God created us, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Enjoy Him. You know, understand that that's what God desires. He desires that you enjoy Him because He enjoys you. And you know what? I want you to leave here understanding that God is crazy in love with you. And that's never going to change. I want you to leave here understanding that God is proud to call you His son. God is proud to call you His daughter. And that's never going to change. I encourage you, challenge you, live with that in your heart. And if you do, It'll fill your heart with joy, and it'll change your life. Let's pray. So I'd like you just for a moment to let your heart be filled with God's love for you. Some of you even have trouble. I can see it when I say that God is proud to call you his son. God is proud to call you his daughter. That is truth. Would you thank him for that and receive that? Thank him for loving you the way, just the way you are. There may be some here today, and, and like me, I grew up in the church, but it was religious. It was religion. And I didn't understand what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ until I was a senior in high school. And, and you might be in the same boat. 
You might believe in Jesus in your head. You might have been to church all your life. Might have been confirmed. Might have been baptized. But when you think about it, you don't really know that you have a personal relationship with him. And if you're not sure, if you don't know for sure that you belong to him, belong to Jesus Christ, I want you to leave here with that assurance. And so, with everybody, heads bowed, eyes closed. If you would like to give your life to Jesus and begin that relationship for which he created you, then I'm going to pray a prayer out loud. I want you to pray this prayer out loud with me. In fact, I want all of us to pray this prayer out loud, but specifically those of you who'd like to give your life to Jesus. So, repeat after me. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. That you came to this earth as a man. You suffered and died on the cross. And took the penalty for my sin upon yourself. I believe you rose from the dead and are alive today. Jesus, forgive me. Come into my heart and life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the power to live the new life that you desire for me. I want all that you have for me. Thank you for your love. Now, if you uh, prayed with eyes closed still, if you prayed to, to make sure and to give your life to Christ, to begin that relationship, would you just raise your hand real quickly? I want to see. Awesome. Quite a few. And let me just say to you that Jesus heard your prayer. He answered. He is now in your heart through his Holy Spirit. He has forgiven you. And you have been adopted as God's own son, as God's own daughter, and you have a home in heaven forever. And you never have to doubt that. He'll never leave you. Could we congratulate those that are new brothers and sisters in Christ? And, and before you leave, we would love for you to get word to us that you've made that decision to give your life to Christ. And you can do that in a, a, just a variety of different ways. Uh, you can meet us over here in the prayer area. Just let us know so that we can pray for you. Um, also, there's some uh, cards uh, in the seats in front of you. And if you just fill out one of those cards to let us know that you've made that decision, because we will be praying for you all during the week. If you need a Bible, go by the Welcome Center and pick up a Bible before you go. And once again, welcome to God's family. One more time. Give them and I am 